I invite you to take a Bible, either your own perhaps, or the one from a pew in front of you, and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read together verses 4 through 16. This is our annual fall focus on small group life at Bethlehem, and you'll notice pictures and statements about the open small groups on a display out there in that corner of the commons. While you're looking that up, let me tell you what we're going to do next Sunday and on through the fall. Many of you have been hearing about the master planning team and its work for the last eight months. We have finalized and are now printing a document, a vision mission document that's about 12 pages in the form that you're going to get it, and uh, I'm going to preach out of it all through the fall, and you will be given a copy, all of you individually, next Sunday morning, and uh, we will spend three months together trying to understand it and to lay ourselves open to all that the Holy Spirit means to do with it in the life of our church, while about 17 sub-planning groups attempt to flesh it out in practical proposals for our life together, which the elders will assemble toward the end of this year and put into a more concrete planning proposal, moving towards a climactic kind of embracing next March 17th. So that gives you a little overview of what next Sunday through next March is all going to be about. So if you've been around for a little while or for a long time, and you wonder, what are the fresh initiatives? What are the new directions? What is the trajectory of this church now? You'll want to come for the next several Sundays and get a copy of that statement and listen to my effort to unfold it, and we'll have some time to talk about it. But this morning, as I think an essential component of any church that I'm going to be a part of, I want to talk about the small group life of this church. Let's read verses 4 to 16. This is one of many, many texts I could have chosen, but you'll see why perhaps this one is significant in this regard as we go. There is one body, that's his word for the church, and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I love that description of of my relationship to the Father. He is over all of us. He's through all of us. He's in all of us. But to each one, circle that each one, that's going to be very crucial as we unpack some of the parts of this text. Unto each one of us, every one of you is included in that, if you're a Christian, unto each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, because he's given grace to each one, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And so the connection between verse 7 and 8, he gave grace to each one and therefore it says he gave gifts. I believe this gifts here is gifts to each of you. It's going to shift now to a different kind of gifting, but so far that. Now, this expression, he ascended, 
What does it mean, except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Perhaps it means the lower parts, that is, the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles. Now he's giving people to the church. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. That's all of you Christians for the work of service or ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. So ministers of the pastor type, evangelist type, prophet type, teacher type, apostle type, were given to the church to equip the saints and they do work of ministry. So connect that saints with the each one of verse 7. Each one of you is given grace and gifts. And then you get equipped in that to minister, and that builds the body. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, seeming to picture the body of Christ as a, a man with Christ as his head coming to full maturity as we minister to each other in these ways. Verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by Waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So he doesn't want any of you to be weak-minded. He doesn't want any Christian to be vulnerable to other people's ideas. Just, here comes an idea across the TV, or here comes something in the newspaper, or here comes something on the radio, or a book you pick up, and poof, you're off in that direction for six or eight months or a year. And then, oh, yes, here comes another one. And, and you're just kind of all over the map, ideologically and theologically. He doesn't want that to be the case. He wants you to be like an oak tree with roots deep and branches strong. And when the winds blow, you don't blow. You're strong. So to that end, verse 15, but speaking the truth, and that truth in this text is all the truth about the Son of God and the faith and, and all the things that we ought to know about God and reality and each other and life and Christ and the Holy Spirit and heaven and hell and faith and the great things I was talking about earlier. Speaking the truth, not in just any old way, but from hearts of love, we are to grow up. In all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom, now this is the most important verse we're going to focus on, from whom, that is from Christ, the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. Now here comes the verb. That's a long, complicated sentence. The whole body causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, my aim this morning is to persuade you that it would be biblical, healthy, empowering, love-begetting, marriage-healing, parent-problem-solving, loneliness-overcoming, weakness-strengthening, if you were in a small group and experienced 
in smaller settings of togetherness with other Christians, a mutual, spiritual, supernatural, Holy Spirit-given, gift-expressing, grace-filled ministry to each other. That's my goal. To persuade you and plead with you to find that. And Jim will stand here at the end and give you practical opportunities, if you don't have any, where you can find it at Bethlehem. Now, I'm going to wonder out loud for a few minutes. Preaching ought not to be mainly wondering out loud. You ought not to wonder about what you say. You ought to come into the pulpit with some pretty strong confidence that it's biblical. But I'm going to wonder out loud for five or ten minutes, maybe. And you will judge now whether these are spirit-guided wanderings or whether I am just all wet here. So here I am wondering. I wonder whether the frequency and seriousness of many Christian problems, many problems that Christians face, the frequency of them, the seriousness of them, because I don't mean to say that anything I do by way of church or any other way is going to overcome problems. In the world you will have problems, Jesus said, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. But I wonder whether... The frequency, the depth, the seriousness, the pervasiveness of so many problems might not be owing to the fact that we, by and large, in America, in the Christian church, do not experience relational, interpersonal, supernatural, spiritual, Christian, corporate life. Psychological problems, marriage problems, parenting problems, self-identity problems, financial problems, career problems, loneliness, addictions, phobias, all kinds of weaknesses. I wonder whether the epidemic of emotional, psychological problems in the church, not to mention the world, in the church, is not a symptom of an organic flaw. In the way we experience corporate church life. And what I mean by the way we experience it is most Christians in America today experience corporate Christian life as a worship service. And that's all. You come to a service like this, be there for an hour, hour and a half, and that's all. They might read their Bible personally. They might attempt to do some ministry in the world. But as far as corporate togetherness, in the power of the Spirit, ministering, there's nothing else. Or another big percentage goes to a class. Some on Sunday morning, some on Wednesday night. And uh, I teach, or a Sunday school teacher teaches... And in those two events, Sunday morning worship service and a class, very little interpersonal, supernatural, spiritual, face-to-face, mutual, gift-based, Holy Spirit-driven ministry for upbuilding happens. Some, but not much. You um, don't 
misunderstand me. I, I live by this service. I make my money doing this. And I love preaching. And I love worshiping with you even more. And I believe in teaching on Wednesday night on the providence of God. And I believe in the Sunday school classes and that without solid teaching, we don't become oaks of righteousness. That doesn't happen merely through face-to-face ministry. There's got to be meat. There's got to be solid teaching if we're going to grow. However, I believe you read the New Testament in vain. To find normative church life corporately as a worship service and a class. You won't find it. You will find something very, very different. And it is perhaps the flaw and what's missing in your life. The inevitable effect of limiting our corporate experience to a big service like this and a class is that the saints, the hundreds, become relationally passive and dependent upon experts like me and Sunday school teachers. It robs us of something that I think the Lord has intended as a remedy for untold numbers of problems. If God designed the church in a significant part to function this way, with every minister, every member ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit, according to gifts to others for their upbuilding, if that was designed by God it would be expected that where that is neglected, there would be multiplied dysfunctions in families, psyches, churches. It's to be expected. Here's another wondering. I wonder whether the felt need today for professional psychologists... With the common assumption, I'm talking about Christians now, with the common assumption that where else could we turn for help like that? Whether that common felt need is owing in large measure to an organic flaw in the way people experience togetherness or corporate church life. Now, think about this for a moment. When I got to this point in my reflections and meditations yesterday, I was just blown away by these next thoughts. They seem so obvious and yet so staggering in their implications. Why do we find help when we go to a Christian counselor? And we do. Why do we? How do they help us? I boiled it down, as I was thinking, to three things. These are the three things that happen when you go to a Christian psychologist. One, personal, one-on-one conversation. Two, if that isn't sufficient, personal, 
five or six on five called group. It's called group. They're doing group. She's in group. It's group conversation. And three, medication. In the most extreme cases, antidepressants. And I would guess in a room like this, a couple dozen are probably on antidepressants right now. Now, does this strike you as amazing that when the church turns to that people-helping group, what is offered is conversation. One-on-one conversation or group conversation. We have a multi-billion dollar ministry, which is conversation. It's a staggering thought. We just talk. People will pay $95 an hour for loving, caring, insightful talk. I paid with Noel for 33 months of it. About five years ago. It's talk. And it's powerful talk. It's life-changing talk. It's helpful talk in the best cases. But does it strike you as incredibly amazing that there might be a correlation to the fact that to the degree that for generations the corporate life of the church doesn't do that kind of talk, there would grow up a multi-billion dollar industry to provide it. Does that, is that, a, is that a wondering that's off the wall? Is there any connection there between the fact that church is a big worship service and a class and then billions of dollars to please, please talk to me. Tell me something that will help me. Talk to me. And people get help. Get help. It's an amazing thing. So we might conclude, well, the church then should get down to business and uh, hire the wise, loving, caring, insightful, wise people called counselors to work for the church and do it in the church and form groups of every kind so that we can support people with every dysfunction and every abuse they've ever gone through. Come on, let's do it. And probably that's necessary. Probably so. However, that is not where I was being gripped yesterday and where I'm gripped right now. Where I am gripped right now is this. What structurally and organically in the corporate life of the church is missing or has given rise to the need for such an artificial talk time? And expensive. What's creating that? Again, not that we're ever going to solve every problem by structuring ourselves a certain way or anything I could do or you could do. There will always be problems, but it, 
Is there something beneath the symptoms that has given rise or has pushed people in that direction? It's the, I thought of this analogy. It's the difference in a scurvy epidemic. Suppose all of you were infected or 90% of you had scurvy right now and broken out and lesions and and we said, we've got to do something about this. And I said, well, we're going to form a ministry to distribute vitamin C. And we should. But my question as a pastor would be, why haven't we been eating oranges? Why haven't we been eating oranges for two or three generations and built up some resistance to this thing called scurvy? See the difference? In an epidemic, yes, you should have certain programs to get at it fast, quick, and rescue. But if that's the only questions you're asking, (laughs) oranges are rot on the tree. And maybe normal Christian life is to eat oranges. Or somebody might conclude, well, let's check it out. Let's see if this is really true, that... Those who have problems in small groups get more victory over their problems in small groups than those who have problems who aren't in small groups. Let's test it and see if it really makes a difference. And maybe that would be a good thing to do. But here's the problem with that. It is possible to take a small group and turn it into a class. Another class. So you learn a few more facts about the Bible and uh, pray and you leave. Now I'm going to give you an illustration here. And I, I took this out of uh, Ralph Neighbor's book, Where Do We Go From Here? He was a, kind of a specialist, a small group guru. And uh, this story illustrates what can happen in a small group negatively and positively. And I want to pray with you toward the positive at Bethlehem. He went to New Zealand, to Auckland, New Zealand, as a kind of uh, visiting pastor and consultant, I suppose. And he was invited by the pastor of a church to a small group meeting one night to show them, to teach them what small group life together might be like in terms of mutual ministry and upbuilding each other in faith and love. And he came early and had dinner with the family that was hosting the small group, and the husband didn't show up. And uh, the wife was so embarrassed, and she apologized. She said he, he had to work late and has his own construction company, and, and he's often required to be out late. And no problem. The people came, and uh, he began to teach them. And the husband came then late and just very dirty, went up to wash and bathe and to come back down about 10, 15 minutes later and joined the group. And he had uh, sent the group into the corners of the um, living room and dining room to get alone with God and just seek God. He said, here's what I want you to do. Ask God to uh, lay upon your heart texts, insights, anything that you might share with the group to minister and build the others up. They had never done this before, and it was awkward for them. And then they came back together, and he said, Now, does anybody have anything that they'd like to to share with the group for our help, for our upbuilding, strengthen our faith, or convict us of anything we might 
need to be convicted of. And there was this awful silence. And a neighbor says he, he felt like he had a major fiasco on his hands. And he tried to draw one man out by asking him uh, if he had anything. And the man just confessed, I, I've never done this before. I don't know really quite what you mean we're supposed to do here. And so he, neighbor handed it back over to the pastor to end it whatever way he could. And the pastor, in a more uh, traditional and less offensive way, said, does anybody have any special need they want to pray for? And the hostess said, I've got this awful rash on my arms. You can see it. It's all over my body. And I've been to several dermatologists, and they give me cream, and I put it on, and it does nothing helps. And I thought maybe you would pray for me. So they put a chair in the middle, and they all gathered around her. And before anybody prayed, to use neighbor's words, um, the Holy Spirit came. And the way he came was in the voice and the heart of the pastor saying, I'll read you his words. I sense in my heart, the Lord is telling me your problem is the result of great anger. Now, you got to say things like that with great vulnerability and openness to correction, I think, because you can do a lot of damage to people telling them what you think God says their problems are. And the sensitive use of a nudge from the Holy Spirit in a open and fallible way can be used like an atom bomb. She began to cry quietly and then sob and then said these words, I am so angry at my husband. He's sitting right there behind her. He promises to be home for dinner. Night after night we eat without him. He's broken his promises to me over and over and I feel I'm a widow as I raise my children. And there was an awareness that this had never been touched for two years of group life together. Didn't even know it existed. And there was an awareness that God had come and something really scary or hopeful was in the offing here. What happened was that the other men in the group came over to this guy who is absolutely filled with shame and sitting there and didn't know whether to run or what. And they came over and they put their hands on him. And one of the men shared that a couple of years earlier, he had gone through the same crisis with his wife. He had almost ruined his marriage. God had mercifully brought him to his senses in time. He had readjusted some of his priorities. God had made it new. It's possible for you too. And one or two others said similar things And then they prayed for the husband and for her, and and it ended. The next Sunday, Ralph Neighbor was preaching in the church, and he saw the small group gathered on the parking lot, and they came into the church just before he was to preach, and they gathered around, and she pulls up her sleeves like this and says, there's no rash. And the husband is standing there, and he says, "Uh, ever since our meeting, I've worked eight hours a day, and I took the kids to the zoo yesterday. I think there's hope for our marriage. So 
There are small groups and then there are small groups. You can try to duplicate Sunday morning or Sunday school. Or you can read the New Testament and ask in this text, what is going on? So let me take just a few minutes and go to the text with you and show you what's going on. Let's start at verse 16 in these closing minutes. And let me just point out two or three things. From whom, that is from Christ, the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, two things. Number one, notice first the phrase at the beginning, from whom, that is from Christ, the whole body. So the first and most important thing to say about corporate church life, whether big or little, is that it comes from Christ. He is building his church. By his spirit, he flows in. And if we don't do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, we do it in the arm of the flesh. And you can call it what you will. It accomplishes none of his saving purposes. Christ is the one who invades his church in preaching, in teaching. In small group life and in every kind of ministry, if it's done in reliance upon him. And the big question is, are we expecting him? When you meet in your small group, are your hands open? Is your mind wide to him? When it says, from Christ, are you saying, come Christ? Do this. Do this. If it flows from you, come tonight when we meet. Second thing to observe here, the subject of this sentence, as I pointed out, it's a very complex sentence, both in English and in Greek. It's hard. It's hard to diagram. It's hard to pick apart and figure out. But once you work on it long enough, it comes together. It's not ridiculous. It's not nonsense. The subject of the sentence is the whole body. You see that? From whom the whole body. Now you gotta find the verb. Well, in my Bible, the real literal NASB, it's down three lines and it causes the growth of the body. The NIV misses it when it says the whole body grows. That's, yeah, that's true. That's not what it says. Poye, auxine, makes growth. So the subject of the sentence is the whole body and the verb of the sentence is causes the growth of the body. Now put that together. The whole body causes the growth of the body. Now start building in the pieces between the subject and the verb like the piece according to the working of each individual part. You see that piece? So the whole body causes the growth of the body According to every one of you doing what you're designed to do in the body. So if the body is to be whole, if it's to be healthy, if it's to grow, the body causes that from the Lord. We are the immediate causal agents. The Lord is the ultimate cause working through us. And it is each individual part, not John Piper. We could probably grow a big, big church here on preaching and real good worship. And this never happened. If we did that, we'd have fame. 
We'd have big buildings. People would write articles about our church. They'd read my books. And there would be sick people everywhere. Sick because nobody's eating oranges. You're only eating steak. And you get scurvy if you only eat steak. So don't be too impressed by big churches. Don't be too impressed by preachers. Don't be too impressed by choirs and worship teams and anything else. Just It isn't all that impressive, frankly. Because you can be a sick, sick church and do all that well. Because verse 16 is something else. It's not everything, but it is something else. Where are you experiencing corporate life like that? I ask you. I urge you, I plead with you to take that question very seriously. One more observation from verse 7. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, he gave gifts to men. Grace was given to each one of you. Therefore, it says, he gave gifts to men. Everybody in this room is graced, graced, graced. The form of that grace is gifts shaped around your personality. I like to think of spiritual gifts as the shape of grace flowing through your individuality. You don't need to be fancy. You don't need to make lists. Oh, I got to have 18, 32 gifts or whatever and find yourself with some inventory. It's just what, whatever shape grace takes as it comes you through your God-given individuality, channeled out to another person with the longing that they be helped and strengthened and built up, whatever shape that takes coming through you, is giftedness. And when you gather in a small group, you're not listing a bunch of gifts and saying, oh, I'll try that one tonight, I'll try that one tonight. You're saying, God, you're the source, you're the head, I'm a little fingernail or a little hand, maybe there's somebody I can scratch tonight. Mm, mm. Make them feel good tonight so that they will go home knowing they're loved. Give me my fingernail gift tonight, whatever it is. The main thing is do you love Do you want to channel grace to other people? Are you asking the Lord, do you believe this text that to each one of us grace was given for ministry? Do you believe that? This is a faith issue as you gather tonight in your small groups. As you walk over to that display in just a few moments and look at all the groups that are available, as you go home and wonder if you should call somebody on the phone and say, maybe we should start a group and try to live out what Pastor John was talking about this morning. So I'm done, and I just want to end with this challenge. I'm not sure about my wonderings. I'll go back and plead fallibility about that first ten minutes, but I I have a growing Conviction. And maybe the Lord will show me enough in Scripture that it becomes a solid conviction that the maladies, the dysfunctions, the weaknesses, the pain in the church 
might in large measure be owing to the fact that there's an organic flaw in the way hundreds and thousands of Christians experience corporate church life, namely in a big worship service and a class where they're taught, and never in this form of Holy Spirit-given, spiritual, humble, loving, relational, interpersonal, love-soaked, Christ-exalting, one-on-one, one-on-twelve ministry. It's gone. It hasn't been there for decades, and therefore we pay for it when we get sick. I think I'm sick. I think I'm sick. I think there are dysfunctions in John Piper in the way I relate to my wife, the quickness with which I get angry at my sons. I think a real shrewd, wise, insightful, mature, spirit-filled talker could help me. Okay? I believe that. And I believe you are there. Jim, we need some practical steps. Come here. If you're feeling like, okay, okay, <laughs> let's, let's try it. What have you got available for us? Tell us. <laughs> 